Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. We're here, we're here, aren't we, Mark? It's another week, <laughs> it is another week. It is the week ending August the 17th, 2018, August the 17th, Mark, and my... My, um, by the time our listeners listen to this, my birthday would have come and gone, Mark. My birthday would have come and gone because actually just quietly we're recording this one a little bit in advance um, for various reasons, which we won't go into our technical reasons because we don't want to give away all our secrets, do we, Mark? So, um, yeah, enough about my birthday. What have you been up to this week, Mark? Brendan, I've had an awesome week um, chasing Jabiru. So... Um, about uh, nine weeks ago, we had a um, black-necked stork come into hospital. It was a maladjusted fledgling, um, and so these birds normally weigh um, about four and a half kilos when they fledge. This poor bird weighed 2.17 kilos and was starving. Anyway, we got him into hospital. We um, worked hard with him, blood work, radiographs, did all the the standard workup, um, and and it is just about the time of year that um, that his parents um, would hunt him away. So he's obviously just not been able to find food, um, and um, and he was like, you know, not going to make it. So we we um, gave him fluids, we gave him food, we um, treated him for a week, we transferred him to one of our excellent carers. And anyway, he, about uh, two weeks ago, he got up to four and a half kilos and he was released. Um, and um, and so he was released onto Hexham Swamp. We watched him for a few days. Then he disappeared. So we've been panicked about him for a week or so. But he's turned up at, um, first of all, at Salamander Bay Golf Course. And then he flew over the... Uh, the um, over Port Stephens and landed in tea gardens in someone's front yard. Fortunately, he had the good sense to not keep begging them for fish and he flew off. And um, we do want him to behave like a wild stork. But, um, but yes, Brendan, so good to hear that our bird, because it's always a worry when we have wildlife that's maladjusted and maybe is not one of the ones to make it in the wild, we worry that um, saving their life and setting them free might... Um, you know, might not be the right thing and they might get out, still not be able to hunt and die a painful death. So it's great that he's doing well. Excellent. Well done. And I presume you took a few photos of him, did you, while he's in the clinic or not, or during the procedures? I must admit, I forget, I don't know about you, Mark, but I often think, I forget because I'm too caught up with the moment of treating that animal to pull out the camera and take some photos of, well, not just procedures, but of these amazing animals we have in the clinic. Indeed, like I'm the same as you, Brendan. I, there's a million things that I look at just after we've done them and put them back into their enclosure to recover. And I go, crikey, that would have been a good, uh, you know, bit of footage for the vlog or a bit of um, a bit of a good, nice photo for social media. I'm pretty good with that 2020 hindsight. 
Yes, and we should um, we should start posting a few of those on vetgurus.com, shouldn't we, Mark? That's a good plug, isn't it? So for our new subscribers or listeners, just go to vetgurus.com and you can see all the past episodes and um, also see the links to um, where you can help support us, like patreon.com and um, see our two main sponsors, sponsors there, Specialised Animal Nutrition and um, Chemical Essentials, yeah. Well, my week, Mark, has been a little bit sort of non-vetty, um, although maybe there will be some vetting in it at some stage, and that's I've been sort of doing a little bit of writing for this um, trip that I've mentioned to you before in China. So I'm going off to um, Shanghai next year to do a little bit of teaching in um, small mammal medicine and um, endoscopy and surgery, middle of next year in Shanghai. So hello to our all uh, Chinese listeners out there and um if you're in Shanghai, then drop me an email and um, might try and catch you when I'm over in Shanghai um, middle of the near, year next year. But mainly, Mark, what I've been doing is trying to organise our little holiday and I'm actually having a holiday with the family, which is pretty unusual for me, isn't it, Mark? I can't remember the last time. It's probably about four years ago that I went on an actual holiday and we're off to India, as you know well, Mark, um, and we've got uh, we, I think we have something like 16 days in India, so we're just finalising the the itinerary for that. Um, we, we'll be based out of New Delhi, and um, again, hello to our listeners in New Delhi. Um, it'd be great to catch up with any of our um, listeners there and um, come and say hello. And yeah, we're going to have a little wander around, obviously taking the camera there, and um, who knows what um, we'll end up doing in um, India and seeing in India as far as the wildlife goes, Mark. But I'm I'm excited. I'm very excited, Mark, about um, our little trip to India, which is in first couple of weeks of December this year is the plan for that one, Mark. I'd love to fit in the other thing which I'd like to go to, Mark, which is the joint conference of the Asian Society of Conservation Medicine and the Wildlife Disease Association Australasia, which is in Bali, and we have mentioned it before, and that's in Indonesia, um, in from October the 28th to the 29th of this month. But I think I'd be pushing it, turning up to that one as well. Um, you don't want to get you don't want to get into any trouble with any. You just you. Well, um, it's yeah, it's a bank account mainly. I think it's <laughs> going to get hit the most with that. But looking at the program, and we will have a link to that at vetgurus.com, There's some very good. Um, I'm looking at the academic program here, and um, well, the program I like is um, snorkeling um, along one um, at one eye on an island, um, off an island, uh, the afternoon mangrove boat tour I like the look of, Mark, and <laughs> also the uh, the bus to the temple and the snake temple and the village turtle conservation project. So I think that's what I would be doing if I turned up to that conference um, over in Bali later this year. Well, I was saying um, to you, Brendan, I've been a long-term member of the WDA and aspired to go to um you know, their conferences have such a reputation for being laid back and, and uh, you know, friendly and, and pretty low-key but with excellent science. And, um, and, uh, and I, like you, won't be able to go to Bali this year, but I think it will be an awesome conference. Yes, and I must admit it's probably been at least 10 years, if not 15 years since I last went to a Wildlife Disease Association conference. But, yeah, they are, as you say, they're fantastic. They're really relaxed and a great place to really... Have a chat and, and have a drink and, and, and catch up with all the 
veterinarians, but not just the vets. The, the, the thing I loved about the WDA conferences, and I ho- hopefully it's still the same, is a lot of zoologists would attend and, 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 and scientists and not just veterinarians, so people interested in wildlife generally. So you'd, you'd get a much broader um, exposure to all these types of people who are who are involved with wildlife. So, yeah, fantastic. So we'll have a link to that one, Mark, as well. I suppose the other thing I've been up to this week is I had a a little training or a teaching session with the um, veterinary students in third year at Melbourne University. So hello to them. And I did mention our little podcast, so maybe a few of them are listening to it. And um, we had quite an interesting day. We had a bit of a chat about uh, euthanasia techniques and um, I told usually a bit of my silly anecdotal stories about um, um, unusual pets and wildlife and then we did some necropsies of um, probably mostly animals that I'd killed in my practice <laughs> that didn't quite make it and uh, we had a really good time learning about um, some anatomy and I always get stumped. They have some fantastic questions, the students. They always, every every single session um, I'm with the students, they always um, point at some sort of anatomical structure in one of the species that we're doing a necropsy on and say, what is that? My, my response to that question, every because the same thing happens to me, and my response is I'm going to go and ask Brendan. Well, my response is, um, well, what do you think it is? Now, just think logically, what sort of system's involved here and what sort of um, area of the body is it? What sort of animal is this? If it's a, it, what, what sort of digestive tract is this that you're looking at with this species? And then we slowly slowly work through it there. And while I'm asking them those questions, I'm, I'm frantically racking my brain to try and remember what the structure is that they're pointing to. <laughs> Um, so, no, we had a really good day, so it was fun. So a good day was had by all, Mark. So um, having said that, I'm going to ra- open with a bit of a downer for the rest of our news stories, Mark, because I'm I'm angry. Oh, I'm back to No, you're angry. Angry, Gran. I'm, a very, I'm angry and angry, Mark, at the moment, and that is this article that I, I flicked over to you, which was sent to me by, gee, I'm trying to remember who sent it to me, but uh, the title of the article is Greyhound Racing in New South Wales, Australia. The government is criticised for tipping in $500,000 in prize money. So this um, basically what's happened is the New South Wales government, after where they initially banned greyhound racing, um, I think two years ago, wasn't it, Mark, yeah, that, yeah. that they put it through the legislation. They've now um, relented to all the pressure and they've allowed um, greyhound racing to, to occur in New South Wales again um, with supposedly stricter controls on it. Um, the the the, um, the racing minister in New South Wales has announced a $500,000 cash injection for a particular um, prize to fund the richest dog race in the world in Sydney later this year. So... I'm not happy, Mark. I think it's absolutely ridiculous and um, I, I don't believe it should be um, happening. So, you know, $500,000 to prop up that industry, which I don't think, personally, I don't think should exist at all. So, yeah. And I'm embarrassed, Brendan, because it's my state, it's New South Wales, and and it really is just a, 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 a um, poster child for lobbying. The lobbyists have just gotten in the minister's ear um, and um, and convinced him that taxpayers' money um, should uh, go to um, to this this race, which is you know, as you said, there's just no there's no public mood for it. There's no um, 
it's just not the right thing to do. And um, interestingly enough, we've talked about greyhound racing before, and um, and there's pretty clear evidence if you graph the total number of greyhounds racing across the world, um, then it's a pretty clear, um, you know, uh, it's a pretty straight line with a very steep decline over time, um, and it tends to cross the zero number um, in about 10 or 12 years' time. So, I mean, there may be some differences, but this is a dying industry with obvious animal welfare concerns. Why our government is putting the money in, I've got no idea, mate. Yes, and I think it's very similar sort of parallels. I think we've, we've both mentioned about with the our thoughts on the live export of, of sheep, etc., um, from Australia and, and the difficulties that have happened with all the deaths on those those ships as well. So that's another industry that I think we need to rapidly phase out. You know? And, um, yeah, I, ju- I just don't understand, you know, 500,000 to to prop that up and to really promote that um, greyhound industry again. And, and, you know, humans are very good, aren't they, at repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And no matter how much some of these industries try and clean themselves up, um, where there's money involved and animals involved, and um, the, the animals will always lose out, in my opinion. So yeah, I'm not happy, Mark. I am not happy with that. So you need to get out there with your little placard and um, demonstrate, Mark. I want to see you on, on national news the next time they have a little demonstration. I'll um, send you the pictures. Yes. So um, I think you've got, well, you've got nut story number two, and this one's not a particularly nice one. It's a bit of a disturbing one, isn't it? Well, it is disturbing, um, and um, it's one that I sent to you uh, from my Scientific American blog, Um it's, it talks about um, uh, toxoplasmosis. Now, I feel a special connection. I mean, most, you know, all of us as veterinarians uh, work with uh, uh, animals that could be affected by toxo, um, and we're so acutely aware, you know, we've all had that time where we've had to talk to um, a client, a long-term client often, who is about to... Um, uh, have a new member of the family and um, and of course they've had a talk to their doctor who has suggested that they euthanize their cat because of toxo and um, so you know as veterinarians we probably temper the human side of um, the medical discussion about the the importance of toxoplasmosis to humans um, and I do have one client who um, who who just um, it breaks my heart to relate the story of uh, her succumbing to toxoplasmosis during pregnancy and and having a, um, a, a, a severely disabled daughter who's a wonderful child, but obviously um, is a um, you know takes a lot of emotional effort and physical effort for to care for from her parents. Um, so this topic, I feel, is something that jumps. And because of mental health, Brendan, we're often talking about mental health, and this article talks about the relationship between um, toxoplasma infection um, and the likelihood of, um, of, uh, of depression, first of all, um, but also uh, specifically the um, likelihood of um, attempts at suicide. Um, and I found, you know, to, to um, 
we always like to you know s set up these um, particular um, news articles so we've got good and bad and funny and whatnot. But um, but on top of your greyhound one, this one is also like a bit of a downer that um, that women with uh, high teeters um, were statistically more likely to um, give birth to children who later in their life developed schizophrenia um, was the um, sort of take-home message. Um, and we know already that toxoplasmosis definitely in a number of prey species changes the neurochemistry of the brain and makes the animals so affected much more adventurous and therefore makes them more likely to uh, be, you know, uh, um, preyed upon. Um, they don't hide away, they, they wander out in the open, they do things that make it more likely. The mouse affected by Toxo is more likely to be eaten by the cat and, of course, that favours the, the life cycle of the organism. And, um, and yet um, we, there are a number of um, things that happen to people who are, are similarly affected. And there's even suggestion that, um, that Toxo may even play a role in cultural differences between nations. Um, so um, this article really does like to, if you pardon the pun, put the cat amongst the pigeons as far as um, the likelihood that um, Toxo may have a direct effect on mental health. Um, they hasten to add at the end of the article that, um, that while there are um, there are likelihoods that um, infection with toxo uh, affects the ability of um, uh, affects the function of the blood brain barrier and may alter neurotransmitters, particularly serotonin and dopamine. Um, that um, as yet there's there's not a sharp cause and effect, and a, and, a, and we may well be dealing with um, you know coincident. Um, it's not necessarily clearly that. Uh, evident at this stage that toxo is the cause, but geez, it's a um, causality may well be a, a factor that um, in the future we're looking at toxo as a um, a reason for changes in um, mental health, Brendan. Yes, and I, th I well, you've summarised it perfectly. That 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 article there, Mark, and it was quite disturbing. And the the, the other article that they spoke about was that um, study in in Denmark, which was looking at serum antibody levels for toxo with taken from children um, as part of a neonatal screening study. And I found that particular summary quite quite disturbing and frightening, um, stating that children. D d because children don't form their own antibodies until three months after birth, the antibody levels reflected the mother's immune response and therefore they were able to passively screen women not only for infection status but also the, the degree of infection. And they were their results were pretty clear, they thought, um, in that particular study saying that women with toxo infections were 54% more likely to attempt suicide and twice as likely to um, succeed. And the one that um, quite I found quite scary was um, 
um, reading on further was those with the highest levels of antibodies were 91% more likely to attempt suicide than uninfected women um, and the connection between parasite and suicide held even for women who had no history of mental illness um, so yeah although they do um, put that um, disclaimer further on about the the actual causality link may not be proven whether it is still quite disturbing um, and also the, the 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 comments about how the incidence of um, toxoplasma prevalence is on the rise um Worldwide, um, and I love the comment that they call this. Um, they call toxoplasmosis a, a parasitic puppeteer. Mark, um, I love that phrase um, in this article. So yes, um, a, a very interesting article, although quite disturbing. Yes, so uh, yeah, it was quite depressing, wasn't it? That little article that you've given us, Mark. Have well, you got well, something a little? Just, do you have something a little bit more? Um, I do. But, more um, I wonder whether whether have, have you had your teeters done? Brendan? I think I have. Now, um, I'm pretty sure you and I both had our blood taken at one of the recent conferences last year, I think, um, where, or maybe you didn't. I, I, I had my blood taken as part of a, a zoonotic screening process um, run by the University of Sydney, I think, at um, the Fasava conference uh, at the Gold Coast last year. And um, they were running through a whole range of potential zoonotic diseases in a whole lot of um, people involved in in, in scientific um, industry, including veterinarians, doctors, um, you know, dentists, whatever. Um, and um, it was a um, very comprehensive study where they'd screen for a large range of um um, potential zoonotic in, um, um, organisms, um, and the final results aren't through. But they did mention in the in the study you could tick a little box saying whether or not you want your full report or not. And I obviously did tick yes. And I think they mentioned in the report if if you were positive for something that they were concerned about, that your your local GP would be notified fairly quickly um, in the study. And I haven't. I, I did get an interim report saying um, um, no problems, I think, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I'm waiting to see what my what my teeter level for Toxo is, if it, if it was positive, and also the other the other screens, um, the other screen uh, the screens of the other organisms um, that were done at that. So, yeah, so I'm looking, and, and, I, and I presume it also included the other um, zoonotic disease that you spoke in detail about during a previous podcast, Mike, Q, query fever, Q fever as well, I think was tested as part of that process. Mm, be interesting to know, interesting to know. My next one is the, um, it's a bit more upbeat, but it has a bit of a quirky twist at the end for me anyway. Um, and it's the article that talks about, um, more specifically about um, how dogs, uh, it's been in the news quite a bit over the um probably the last 12 months, that dogs have been used um, because of their outstanding olfactory sense. Um, they've been, you know, used for multiple things, uh, particularly things um, to sniff out landmines or um, locate uh, people in, in uh, disaster areas that might be buried in rubble with an earthquake. Uh, but this particular one is one where that uh, outstanding sense of smell is used to um, identify cancer cells, um, and um, and so uh, the dogs have been used to um, to uh, apply their ability to um, smell these 
trace amounts of molecules um, and to select, um, uh, you know, to identify um, uh, um, cancer cells, I suppose. Um, yes. So this, um, this test um, at the moment, the way it works is that um, the researchers have obtained samples from uh, people who were affected by lung cancer and people who were not um, and then they trained the dogs to identify um, the uh, the samples, you know, the, that were um, that were positive for uh, lung cancer. Um, and so, fairly quickly, as I understand it, the dogs were able to um, were able to uh, um, I, you know identify disease positive and disease negative test samples, and obviously the individuals who supplied them. Um, and um, and so this opened up a whole new line of research that um, that may be these trace molecules that the dogs were identifying might be um, uh, signals for us to be able to identify these cancers as a, at a much earlier stage. Um, and so uh, so that really you know this is a very promising area of research. Obviously, allowing uh, researchers to identify. Um, patients at a much earlier stage um, and um, and therefore maybe to provide treatment before these particularly nasty sorts of cancers become uh, untreatable. Um, but the real the twist at the end for me was that um, they weren't going to actually use the dogs. They were just using the dogs to identify the molecules to, um, to uh, figure out what the dogs were smelling. And then they were going to build expensive equipment um, semi-automated scent detection apparatus, uh, actual, you know, fake nose, if you will, that will identify these specific chemicals. So the dogs do all the hard work and Brandon, they get flicked and replaced by the machine. We're all expendable, Mark, <laughs> including the cancer detecting and dogs, yes. So there you go. I've ended it on a downer. That <laughs> last little story there, Mark. Yes, no, quite interesting. And um, the the whole aspect of trying to um, avoid bias from the um, testers there with, with um, the way they've built that little room, um, which people can read if they um, go to our com website and read the full article there. Yeah, so no, it was... Um, an interesting article, Mark. So I think we've got a cracker, I reckon, of a, and that's a really Aussie colloquialism there, isn't it, of a, um, of a, of a main topic this week, haven't we, Mark? And it is thankfully from one of our keen listeners. And would, do you want me to read out the email, Mark, or do you want to read out? Well, since it involves pronunciation, I think you should do it. I'll really butcher it down <laughs> my time, Mark. So um, this is from a one of our um, avid listeners in Denmark. Um, it yeah, well, her second name is Louise. So hello, Louise, and I think her first name is pronounced Mete, but it may be Meet or Meti or who knows. She can um, Louise. Um, you can send us another reply email and let um, us know how to pronounce your first name. So thank you very much for your email, and her email is, Hi, guys. Thank you so much for providing a lovely and a very informative podcast. Actually, I just put that bit in, Mark. Um, it is very much appreciated. I am one of the only exotic vets in Denmark. I would love if you would discuss rabbit snuffles. 
treatment and diagnostic procedures. I find it quite difficult to cure these guys and reoccurrence often happens after antibiotics are stopped. All the best from Denmark. Um, I think we'll have to head over to Denmark at some stage, Mark, and we'll have to interview um, Mette Louise and um, spend a bit of time over in Denmark looking around, won't we? So, yeah, we're going to talk about snuffles in in um, rabbits. And I think, Mark, or I'll jump in first. In I, I think the important thing for those who don't um, know much or haven't heard of the terms, it's sort of a catch-all phrase, isn't it, Mark, for upper respiratory or even lower respiratory sometime um, conditions in rabbits. So, And it's sort of the lay term and it describes it quite well, doesn't it, snuffles. Um, uh, so it isn't one particular organism that can cause this and there's certainly a number of underlying disease processes that, that can can be contributing to snuffles in rabbits. So what we're going to do is our usual in that we'll work through or walk through um, the signs and um, the disease process and the causes and um, potentially the treatment options we have for them and the, and the prognosis and the workup um, for these um, snuffle cases and hopefully um, it will be able to help you, um, Louise, with... Um, Dealing with these, um, I mean, my bottom line with these is, yeah, reoccurrence is 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 not uncommon with these, and um, because it can be quite difficult to cure them, so that's a spoiler alert for the rest of the podcast. And um, they're often uh, multifactorial, and they're often due to under underlying chronic conditions um, that that need um, just long term treatment um, to try and just keep them under under control. So, Mark, why don't you jump into well, probably the first obvious thing to or next obvious thing to talk about would be the what signs do you classically see with these um, animals with the snuffles these little bunnies with snuffles well it's, it is interesting brendan because we often you know the 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 fact that snuffles is a um a catch-all phrase and it's um you know widely um used across the internet across the forums of uh rabbit owners we often that's often the you know, the appointment is often headed and I'm bringing my rabbit in for you to have a look at it, at it because it has snuffles. And, um, and so these rabbits will often show up with a, um, a little bit of, um, white, often, um, surprisingly white mucopurulent, uh, nasal discharge. And, um, and that can, it, most of the time in my experience is bilateral, but obviously can be coming from one nostril. Um, it, uh, it very regularly um, causes the rabbit to um, to sneeze, and so um, the white stuff, even a little bit of watery white stuff, will be plastered around the inside of the carrier. For example, um, we've got to remember too that it's a little bit distressing for our rabbits to have any obstruction to their um, nasal passages because they are obligate nasal breathers. Unlike me, when I get a bit of sinusitis and I have to spend a night breathing through my mouth like um uh, just to um stay alive the rabbits can't do that they uh, have to breathe through their nose and so um those uh, that discharge the the attempts to sneeze the um the uh, snorting and honking to clear the nose out the back um these uh, are are they're really quite distressing and the clients really notice how distressed the rabbits are oftentimes the rabbits will have um some staining of the front legs. They'll often groom um, around their face uh, quite a lot 
Um, and uh, so the inside, the medial aspect of their forelegs, which they will use to um, to uh, uh, groom their face, will often just be stained, maybe a little bit wet. Um, and so sometimes there are just subtle signs and the, the uh, rabbit is out of sorts, but most of the time it's pretty apparent, Brendan, that they're in trouble as they're presented. Yes, and I think that comment about the wet front feet one is an excellent one because um, that's something that can often be missed um, with with one of those few subtle signs that we see like that with these these cases. And, um, yeah, I think it's something that those who don't see too many rabbits should think about when they have a rabbit that might be showing some of these um, less obvious signs of, of that list that you mentioned there and, and the other ones that they sometimes have are all those sort of respiratory noises mark all those sort of snorting and, and um, sneezing um, honking sort of signs and and um, little sneezing fits is one that I um, often see in them fairly um, not not un, un, infrequently mark um, with them as well yeah so um, and then they often will then be progressing to the more serious um, conditions that we'll talk about um, as um, as we get a little bit deeper into this including the, the lower respiratory tract disease so you know the other side that we should be thinking about is just just mild again I suppose it's a little bit of a bit of a subtle one is that 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 slightly increased respiratory effort with them um, regardless of whether it is upper or lower respiratory tract um, disease happening in, in that particular individual you might see just a slightly increased effort with them and, and result in slightly increased respiratory rate as well so which can be quite tricky to, to, to detect in a rabbit that you have on a consult table that's stressed out um, because you've just had a cat in the consult room um, a few minutes before there, Mark. So, but maybe if we just, uh, I think, geez, there's a long list, isn't there, of potential causes of, of snuffles in um, in rabbits, and it isn't just the classic one that often clients will will bring in with their little list of Dr. Google saying that it's pastoralosis that is causing um, snuffles in rabbits because there's certainly a lot of other potential things that are that are causing it apart from um, bacterial infections, isn't there, Mark? And I might just start with a couple of them and then you can chime in with a few more, Mark. And, you know, the obvious one, which I think are fantastic when you get these ones, and these are the unilateral ones, Mark, where you get the nasal foreign, foreign bodies there and the, the real classic one there is, and, and I've certainly probably taken out um, at least a dozen grass seeds of various rabbits over the years um, from a rabbit that has a bit of a nasal, chronic nasal discharge there and, and, and you see something sitting in that nostril after you've gently bathed away um, that white mucopurulent material there and you see, you, you can just see the tip of something and I grab the little alligator forceps and, and out comes a... Um, out comes a grass seed with them. So nasal foreign bodies is, is certainly on the list with these. Um, and nasal I mean, foreign bodies, Brendan, they're the, the classic one where just as you feel awesome when you get it out and just as you're holding it up, that's when someone says, oh, you've videoed that, of course, or taken a photo of it as you came out. Um, and, yes. And it, and it and would make for excellent vision, but it's always the case that you've just missed it. But it's just exactly as you described. You often, and, you know, it probably happens to us three or four times a year where there's just the horn sticking out the corner of the nose and you grasp it with the forceps and it's just wonderful. Do you find 
that that happens more in the brachys. The more brachycephalic they are, that it's more likely they'll get um, foreign bodies. That um, that the shape of their face makes. Good question, Mark. Yeah, good question. Um, I I must admit, I um, thinking about it, I I I I don't think I've seen a particular increase or percentage with those um, flat-faced rabbits, but um, maybe I haven't been looking close enough at that sort of thing to, you know, is it involving those um, squashed-in rabbits or not? Not quite sure. Funny you should mention about the video in though, Mark, because um, one of the rabbit vets here in Melbourne, um, Jerry, the the rabbit doctor, um, she did happen to video one of those removal of those grass seeds and posted it on her Facebook page, uh, the rabbit doctor, um, I think it's called, and yeah, it went a little bit semi-viral, and I think she got tens of thousands of hits um, with with rabbit owners throughout the world seeing that little video because it's just so dramatic um, seeing that little one. But yeah, so funny. Should so she beat us to it, Mark. Um, we didn't have our camera or our video camera ready um, for that. So yeah, so um, nasal foreign bodies certainly. Um, dental disease. Um, you know, we always worry about rat dental disease in rabbits, don't we, Mark? So underlying dental disease. Um, can certainly be causing problems. How does that work if you don't see many rabbits? Um, well, it is those elongation of those tooth roots in that maxillary area that are pushing up potentially into the nasal sinus areas and also into that um, area where that nasolacrimal duct is and and and, and causing problems there. So physically um, causing problems, pushing into an area where it may be setting off a a commensal organism, something like the pastorella, and we will talk a little bit about the pastorellosis and how, how that works um, in rabbits shortly, or you can do that, Mark. Um, so it can set off these sort of organisms that are sitting there in the background. So, yeah, dental disease. Um, immune suppression of any sort of older rabbit. So it's one of the things that might be causing problems in in an aged rabbit is that it may be the respiratory tract that ends up playing up um, and so we end up getting um, again these latent infections that start to start to become clinical with them um, as well do you want to talk about the primary bacterial infections and the whole story about the pastorellosis in rabbits you know is pastorella the evil organism that um, that a lot of people think that's causing these um, snuffles mark does it does it cause most of the snuffles well, certainly in our experience it does not brendan it's um it's you know, as you've alluded to already it's um it's uh all over the textbooks and the internet that um that these rabbits that have snuffles um there's all an automatic association with the the um the you know pastorellosis the the infection with pastorella and certainly um, you can uh, culture pastorella from some of these rabbits, but even you know we've uh, we've definitely taken the time to culture many of them, um, and I wouldn't say that um, that they represent uh, more than about ten percent of the isolates that we um, culture, um, and there's a vast range of um, a vast range of uh, both. Um, other commensals and uh, more pathogenic bacteria that cause this, um, and and if you were to culture the uh, nose, the the bacteria in the nose of a completely healthy rabbit, um, pastorella would be um, 
would be an organism that would turn up quite regularly, I think, as well. So our attitude is that there usually has to be some other, uh, you know, um, immune-modulating event, a change in anatomy, um, as you've already alluded to, the the, um, the tooth roots from those cheek teeth changing the shape of the sinuses, maybe even a tooth root abscess that ruptures into the nasal cavity. Um, we've, we've definitely had cases where we've felt the turbinates themselves have changed shape, so maybe a viral infection in a, a juvenile rabbit um, that changes the developing shape of the the uh, turbinates as happens in pigs and cats and other species um, and um, and those anatomic changes then change the uh, uh, local defenses and allow some of those commensals including pastorella um, to take off and cause a problem but as for them being you know that direct relationship um, that's not something that um, that we see uh, that's that's exactly the same as your view of it, Brendan. Yes, and I think I'd probably end up doing similar to what 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 you were sort of alluding to, Mark. In that, if I'm going to spend the client's money on working up these cases, I'm looking for that underlying other other cause that the dental disease, etc., rather than reaching first for, in theory, the ideal of, of doing a culture um, from the nose there. So I must admit that I put doing a culture from that, that pus that's coming out or, or doing a swab from the nose um, is lower on the list of the, the workup that I do in these um, these particular cases because you get back that result. Or, or even if you did a respiratory PCR panel which which some of the labs can certainly do um then looking back at those results yes it comes back positive for pastorella it comes back positive for for potentially other organisms as well and then you think well what does that mean it may have been a commensal organism in this this particular individual is it is it clinical is it pathogenic um in this individual at, at this point in time or is it not so yeah it can be get become a bit problematic about deciding which um you know what to do with that information and and i'm usually doing what you sort of were mentioning looking for the other potential underlying causes that have that have compromised that patient and its immune system um rather than saying yes it's it's the dreaded pastorella because there are other organisms there that are certainly implicated and can potentially cause disease there mark and the other ones that we that are often mentioned the bordetella um with them and again that can be a commensal organism as well um but it can be can be disease causing and and our other usual um range of bacteria um, um like staph organisms and and pseudomonas um as well mark um well what about you know what what are your thoughts on some of the the other types of conditions that we'd consider causing chronic nasal or chronic upper respiratory um conditions say in a dog or a cat um what what are those sort of conditions that um, or causes and and do you see them very often in rabbits causing causing um, snuffles? Maybe? Well, I often talk about them, Brendan, and you know we're we're generally um, you know in the this is something that um, is a common feature when I have uh, recent graduates who you know form their list of um, differential diagnoses and of course um, uh, inflammatory conditions, neoplasia. Um, fungal infections these are all on the list but to be completely honest um i very rarely um see uh cancers of the uh 
the face or nose lead to these problems, not nearly as frequently as I would in dogs, for example. Um, and similarly, uh, the you know the the uh, aspergillomas or the cryptococcus infections that we might see in cats. We just I can't tell you I've ever diagnosed one of those in a rabbit. Um, and so the, those other um, items on our list, our standard list of differentials, um, they they really are not, we're always on the lookout for them and it'll be a lovely uh, uh, case study to report when we do find one, but they really are not common in my experience, Brendan. Yes, ditto with me. I rarely see those um, compared with, so we'd certainly put it much higher on the list if, for instance, we saw a chronic nose problem in in a cat for instance and we'd be thinking of those fungal infections for example with them um, i think the other things that we need to, to briefly mention as potential causes and we've covered a fair few there um, is also the non-respiratory type causes and we've always got to sort of sit back and think is even though we have um, snuffles in this particular rabbit is there an underlying other condition that may be contributing or being the initial primary cause. And that, that's thinking about things like um, even cardiac disease with the mark um, that that we, we occasionally see and, and potentially even otitis as well. So we're looking at ear, ear conditions that may um, be linked with some of these chronic snuffle ones. So it's it's always, as, as, as you and I mention a lot, Mark, um, sitting back and not looking at the obvious and, and looking at the rest of the animal and trying to pick up whether there's any correlation between other other conditions that are going on there and and the obvious um, condition that the patient was brought in for so so what's your i mean what what's your basic we've probably already started to cover this but what is your basic workup for these cases you get that rabbit brought into you my rabbit has snuffles dr google told me so it's got has an obvious bilateral nasal white discharge um what do you do with that rabbit when it comes in Mark? well um we've you know it's the it's a very very similar pattern i suppose to the sorts of things that we would do routinely we really focus on doing as thorough a clinical examination as possible and just as you mentioned before we really want to make sure we do uh auscultate the chest thoroughly at thoroughly and feel the abdomen um, completely before we close in and focus on the, the nares. And, and when we do look at the, the um, nostril, use some magnification and, and use a swab that's been dipped in uh, some warm water and wipe away the, the, um, the tenacious muco, mucopurulent discharge and see if you can see a, an awn from a, a, a grass seed. All those things on clinical exam are uh, the first step. But then once we've gotten past that, um, we're talking to the client about um, about uh, uh, considering radiographs of the head, um, taking some bloods, um, and probably uh, because we're going to um, have a very short general anaesthetic, we need to talk about the risks of general anaesthetic in um, patients with respiratory compromise. But if we are... Um, drawing some blood and taking radiographs. We're also keen to um, maybe stick our little uh, um, very fine rigid endoscope into the nasal passages and visualise what's going on there. Um, and if we're sticking the scope into the nose, we're probably going to stick it into the mouth because the more that you can see of those teeth, the more clues you'll get about um, whether there is underlying dental disease when you review the radiographs. 
Yes, and I think d- doing those plain radiographs in a lot of cases, I find anyway, Mark, um, you, you can see some obvious changes here with those common um, condition that we see with that underlying dental disease and, and sometimes we see that obvious destruction to those um, nasal nasal um, turbinates and, 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 and even a, a, a sinus fill, filled full of pus there, Mark. And occasionally, gee, or it's probably rare that I've had a client that I would recommend um, sending their little rabbit to get a CT scan um, and, and you get some nice little detailed pictures of, of what's happening with them too. So that I suppose that's advanced imaging is another thing we can do there. And, and yeah, I do the same as far as pop in a little endoscope up the nose and in the mouth there and I've got a little very fine, um, as I've mentioned before, I think 1.4 mil semi-flexible endoscope which um, is quite fun to pop up the nasal cavities of these animals. Um, Although the smaller these diameter of these endoscopes become, the the um, more difficult it is to um, get a good um, view of what's in there because they gunge up quite quickly, Mark, um, when you've popped it in that nasal cavity. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, I do exactly the same as you there and, and, you know, probably the last thing I'd reach for is what I mentioned before is, uh, you know, the, the culture and sensitivity for them, although um, doing a quick swab and doing a bit of a smear and a diff quick um, or, or, or your stain, in-house stains is, is certainly um, a pretty easy thing to do and gives you a bit of a feel for what sort of um, range of um, or types of bacteria you have sitting in there, Mark, um, and if there's any obvious um, cancer cells, if you happen to get that, um, what I'd say is incredibly rare case that um, has, a, has a neoplasm um, up the nose region, Mark. So how do you treat them? What's your what's your approach to treating these um, snuffle cases, Mark? Well, the first thing we do, it depends a little bit on how they are when they come in um, and we definitely see some as I mentioned before because they're obligate nasal breathers some of these rabbits will be like quite distressed um, and so for those rabbits we institute emergency treatment we get them into um, a, uh, an oxygen rich environment um, we might treat them with some uh, sedatives to um, alleviate some of their anxiety um, and once we've got them stable, um, then we might use some uh, anti-inflammatory drugs. We might, um, uh, we might, uh, given those results from the the uh, smear that you discussed, we might um, institute some initial antimicrobial therapy, um, and um, and probably we'd consider um, nebulizing and moisturizing those, uh, getting moisture into that mucopurulent discharge means the effort that the rabbits put in to clear the nasal passages um, helps. The, the, the uh, mucopurulent discharge is not nearly as tenacious once it's thoroughly uh, humidified, once it's thoroughly hydrated. Um, so that's probably our initial steps. Um, the, we probably would do most of that, start that stuff in hospital, um, uh, get the animal stable, do any additional workup we need to tailor the treatment further. Um, but often we're sending them home with, uh, um, you know, the the, uh, the ongoing aspects that uh, that people can do at home where they might nebulise them. Obviously, they can't give the oxygen at home, keep up the antibiotics. But we're probably going to change some of the uh, husbandry um, in such a way that we 
lessen maybe some of the volatile oils or the dusts that might be in their environment. We, we haven't mentioned that, um, that there is some possibility that some of these rabbits might have a, um, an allergic response to some of the, the uh, dusts or uh, um, allergens, potential allergens that are in their environment. So um, removing that potential contributing factor is always a good thing to do. Um, and, yes. And that's probably the, the, um, the stage at which we're getting them home with antibiotics. Are there particular antibiotics you would use in these circumstances, Brendan? Yeah, there's probably a few I'd reach for regardless of whether we've done that culture or not. Um, and, and, yeah, just going back one step, yeah, just agreeing with what you said as far as the, the most important thing to do initially is keep the animal alive always and, um, you know, helping them breathe and, and cleaning out those nostrils that are clogged because it's, um, if you see a rabbit that cannot breathe through that nose and it starts to mouth breathe, it's a rabbit trying to die on you. So, um, yeah, it's stabilising the patient and um, starting that basic therapy first before we reach for the other bits there. Um, and, you know, the client um, the client wants you to treat it for that pastorella infection, obviously, Mark, don't they, um, that they brought that rabbit in for. So, yeah, um, my, my, I use a combination of things um, with, with, with the classic um, um, snuffles case there and as far as the antibiotics go I'm more and more recommending um, the penicillin injections um, they seem to control these cases quite well and, and that would vary as far as how often I would be um, getting the client to to give the injections and the vast majority of clients um, manage to be able to give these injections at home so the client and the rabbit go home with a with a bottle of uh, penicillin and uh, we show them how to give the injections to their little bunny rabbit having said that i just had an email from a client today that i went through the whole process of explaining how to give the injection to their little rabbit that has very severe dental disease and uh, i just got an email back um, saying that they're struggling to give the injections and it's clogging up in the syringe, so I think we'll have to get them back in to show them how to give the give the injections again. So penicillin, um, getting back to to what I should be answering your question, um, uh, enrofloxacin um, is sometimes dispensed with them, and, and the other one we'd probably most commonly use is our variations on our trimethoprim sulfur drugs mark. So they're probably the three that I most commonly dispense or use with um, with um, these rabbits with the with the snuffles. Do you it, what do you end up uh, sending them home on? Mark? Well, and it comes as no surprise, Brendan, that um, that I'm doing largely the same thing. We do depend heavily on um, trimethoprim sulfur probably as our first line. Um, we would use the um, enrofloxacin pretty, you know commonly where we had a significant number of gram-negative rods in the um, gram-stained smear of the nasal discharges. Um, we're always, you know, this is a bit of a vexed question in um, rabbit veterinary medicine, the whole question of dysbiosis once you um, employ one of the penicillins. And so we do tend to hold off on those injections until we've got... Um, you know, a case that's not resolving with other antibiotics. Um, and it's often part of our palliative treatment to use those routinely for a long period of time. 
Um, but um, we can't. I can't tell you. We've, I've had um, a single case where I think dysbiosis was the consequence. And for the many doses of penicillin that I've given rabbits parenterally, um, dysbiosis is not. Uh, you know, I think I've probably had as many cases of dysbiosis with um, with trimethoprim sulfur as I have with penicillin. Has that been your experience, Brendan? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think I, I think people need not panic as much as they tend to um, when, when using it. Yeah, is that, that would be my comment. The yeah. key thing, and um, you know, the, I'm sure most of the people listening to us already know this, but um, the oral uh, penicillin or the drugs from that family, that's a disaster. Um, but... Um, if we're giving it parenterally, and particularly if we're using procaine penicillin or penicillin G, that, that seems um, to be no more likely to generate um, disturbances to the gut flora than some of our other commonly used antibiotics. But we do reserve it for, uh, for I suppose, the second round, if you like, Brendan. Yes, yes. What other medications do you put them on? Nothing? Just the antibiotics? Um, no, we definitely... Um, the, these rabbits are distressed, um, and so we'll, we definitely like to put them on to um, uh, some anti-inflammatory medication. We um, uh, really like the idea that we can um, uh, provide them with uh, decreased um, uh, swelling in their airways. Um, we tend not to... Um, uh, you know, with our other animals that might have uh, inflammation in the respiratory tract where we might contemplate using um, uh, um, steroids or uh, we obviously steer clear of those drugs with our rabbits. Um, we might, um, uh, um, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago with our rats, we might um, uh, nebulise them with a, a uh, um, bronchodilator, um, uh, something along the the lines that open up their airways and make them a little bit more uh, easy to breathe, um, particularly if we've got, uh, as is often the case with these, um, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, whether they start in the nose and progress down um, and develop a pneumonia or whether, they, um, whether they've got a uh, lung problem and that uh, moves up the airways and eventually manifests itself as a... Uh, uh, irritation of the airways, but um, uh, certainly if we've got any signs that the lungs are affected, then um, we're considering using um, things that will make the airways more open and easier for the animals to breathe. Well, guess what? <laughs> exactly the same here, Mark. I don't think I need to add much to that. Yes, so I think it's a combination of... and. Uh, the. the Add into that, I suppose, is how long we we use these medications in some of these these cases, and and I have found that that we do have long term cases with the snuffles, um, 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 similar to the long term dental disease ones, and obviously some of these are tied together that need to be on these um, medications um, for prolonged periods of time, and and yes, we are obviously monitoring for that dysbiosis, as you just mentioned, Mark, um, but. Um, if they're taken off um, the antibiotics, some of them we can get on intermittent therapy or pulse therapy with them. But um, I do find a fair number.
number of them, especially the the really old ones, which I think have got a pretty compromised immune system. Um, they do need to be on um, longer term um, prolonged. It's almost like palliative care, I suppose, in a way that if we don't keep them on it, they do tend to fall in a heap and and get um, very snuffly and very um, very um, blocked up pretty quickly. Do you have a similar um, um, experience with them or not? And um, and this is starting to get boring for our um, listeners. They just keep echoing <laughs> each other. But I think there's an interesting thing I like to um, to say. Uh, this is one of those situations where managing client expectations is of paramount importance, Brendan. That um, you know, doing their research through Doctor Google or whatever um, leads people to think that this is a simple bacterial infection, and if we treat them with the right antibiotics in inverted commas. Um, that we're going to affect a cure, and and as you have just you know using words like chronic and um, palliative, um, it is probably more common that we are trying to manage these um, animals that they will have anatomic changes either to the tear duct or the teeth or the turbinates that mean this problem is not going to go away, and we can get it into remission for a while, but. I often talk to people in terms of this being like a cancer, but um, we're going to have to manage it and maintain well-being, but the disease is not going to go away. So I think... Absolutely. Go. Yep. No, go ahead. I was just going to You're say, on a roll, Mark. You're on a roll. Keep going. I was just going to say that, that um, often, particularly with our rabbit clients, managing that expectation at an early stage really does uh, prevent lots of problems later on that um, that if we're uh, if we are leading them in in the assumption that this may well be something that they've got to deal with um, for a long period of time for probably in many instances the rest of the rabbit's life um, that uh, um, puts them in a different frame of mind and prepares them for the things they might need to do over the the, um, the ensuing months to years yes yes so How's that for a long-winded answer to um, Louise's or Mete Louise's um, question there? So, yeah, I think I sort of gave that little spoiler at the start there and that, yeah, they can be quite difficult to control and that reoccurrence certainly is um, a, um, a possibility with these, especially if we stop those antibiotics. So, so I think don't be afraid of potentially putting them on a prolonged course or a longer course of antibiotics if that's that's indicated in in that individual and just monitor the the, the, the gut um, with them and um, you need to really yeah talk to your clients and mention the possible uh, the, the fact um, in a lot of these that it is um, an ongoing condition in your particular bunny and it's something that we're just trying to control so yeah I'd love to have a simple solution um to it mark that um we can fix these guys with snuffles but um yeah it isn't just pastoralosis with them isn't mark that we need to knock on the head and everybody's happy and the bunny's happy and it never gets snuffles again and i think the other thing is there you know that once those those bugs have eaten away um into the respiratory tract especially that upper respiratory tract it's never quite the same again um in my opinion with them it's and the analogy i use to clients is the a bit like the chronic otitis dogs or cats and if you um, mention that to a client it's just like a dog or a cat that has a an ongoing ear problem and, and the ear 
Um, Canal is never quite the same. It's a little bit scarred and narrowed, and, and the production of the ear normally wax is, is, is not quite right. That dog or cat is going to be prone to chronic ear infections, and that's often the analogy that I use to these um, clients with their rabbits um, with the snuffles, Mark. Um, they usually just look at me with a bit of a perplexed look on their face, Mark. Um, I think that I think and walk, walk out the room and I never see them again. <laughs> I like talking to you about these things, Brendan, because I think, um, you know, we've gone through saying, oh, we do all the same things, but those little um, uh, bits of communication, the analogies, the, the um, ways that we can, the more ways we've got to explain that to the client, better it is, I think. So I don't underestimate your message, Brendan. Even though the clients stand there looking blank, I think they, they understand um, a bigger part of the problem. And, um, and yeah, I'll, I'll be taking advantage of your uh, analogy in the very near future. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Well, I think with that, we better get out of here. And um, thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.